what is the way of salvation? Or simply, how can we be saved? It's a question that's been asked by many. In fact, I remember as a new believer uh, here in Dubai, attending a, a Muslim-Christian dialogue up in Knowledge Village that dealt with this very question. Many religions would seek to answer this very question, follow the Eightfold Path, follow the Five Pillars of Islam, simply love God and neighbor. Do this, don't do that, and then you can be sure that you will have salvation. Well, our passage this morning deals with a man with this very question, and we will find out that the way of salvation can never come from us. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, to help us walk through our passage this morning, we'll split our text into three points. First, the demands of the law. Second, the foolishness of self-justification. And third, the transforming mercy of God. The demands of the law, the foolishness of self-justification, and finally, the transforming mercy of God. First, the demands of the law. Look with me at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So in our passage this morning, we learn that a lawyer has come to Jesus. Now, this lawyer isn't your legal lawyer that we often think of. No, this is a lawyer of the Jewish law. He's someone who's known as a religious authority. He's studied the law of Moses and is a teacher of that very law to God's people. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus with a question. But we also know that this lawyer isn't really interested in the real answer. Look at 25 again. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This lawyer didn't really want the answer. What he wanted, perhaps, was to catch Jesus off guard. Maybe Jesus will say something that will allow the religious leaders to condemn condemn him. After all, the religious leaders were the very people who hated Jesus. And so he asked this question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is eternal life? Well, eternal life is life with God. Specifically for the Jews, uh, it stood for life with God in his eternal reign. Reigning with God and living with God forever in his kingdom. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, defines eternal life as this. John 17, verses 3 to 4. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what is eternal life? Well, it's knowing the God we were made for. It begins with a very restored relationship with our Creator and continues as we live in His presence and His kingdom forevermore when He returns and makes all things new. So this lawyer wants to know, how do I ensure I get that? What can I do to know that I have, in fact, eternal life? What can I do to be saved and avoid his judgment? It's a really good question. In fact, it's the most important question that any one of us in this room can ever ask. If you're here and you're a teenager, I wonder, have you ever honestly asked yourself this question? Right, this is more important than asking what, uh, about what's going on in social media. It's more important than asking how you can be successful in life. It's more important than, than knowing how to be liked by your peers and friends. There are so many questions you can ask, but none are more important than this one. My non-Christian friend, this is a question you should be asking yourself this morning. It's more important than knowing what to invest in. It's more important than knowing how to build your own career or earn more money or or perhaps even more important than just being a how do I become a better person. J.C. Ryle writes these words. It is a question which deserves the principal attention of every man, women, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? Where shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest until they find an answer. Well, what is the answer to this very question? Well, look at Jesus' answer. Verse 26. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answers the question given by the lawyer by asking a question about the law. Jesus asks the lawyer, well, what does God's law say? What do you understand are the demands of the law? And we see the lawyer's answer in verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
In these verses, we get uh, a combination of two different Old Testament texts. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The second comes from Leviticus 19.18, which we read this morning. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the very question, answer that Jesus would answer when asked, what, what's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus responds finally to the lawyer's question. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What are the demands of the law? Well, we read them right here. Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. What does that mean for us? It means that we are called to love God perfectly with everything we have. That is to completely obey the Lord from the womb to the tomb without any stain of sin without any form of idolatry or tainted desire or selfishness for self-glory. This means all of life lived in obedience to God, to the praise and glory of God. And second, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is to live in the service and care for those around us to sacrifice willingly and joyfully for them, not just for the people you like, not just for the people who are your family, not just for the people who are like you, but to love and care for every person in need around you as you're able to. To love them as you love yourself. What does God's law demand of us? Perfect love of God and perfect love of neighbor. Oh, do you see that the demand of the law isn't merely comparing ourselves to one another? thinking, oh, I love better than that person. I love God more than them. Surely I'm okay. No, the demand of the law is perfection. We must be perfect as God is perfect. So Jesus tells the lawyer, you want to earn salvation? You want to do something to earn life? Do what you have said. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Now Jesus makes this statement to help this lawyer see the foolishness of this question. Jesus wants this lawyer to see, and he wants us to see, that we don't match up, that we haven't done this. We have never done this. We have not loved God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have failed miserably at the demands of the law. But that doesn't happen here. Second, the foolishness of self-justification. Look at verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, this man doesn't understand. He doesn't see himself rightly. He, he doesn't see his need for forgiveness. He doesn't see his need for salvation or that he can't earn salvation on his own. He doesn't see that he's sick and dead in rebellion against God. No, instead he thinks he's okay. 
He thinks he's past the mark of loving God and loving neighbor. We, we know this because of what Luke writes. Look at 29 again. But he desiring to justify himself. What does this lawyer want to do with this very next question? He wants to justify himself. He wants to declare himself righteous before God. He wants to show that he himself is blameless before the throne of God. But he wants to make sure. He wants to make sure that his thoughts are correct. So he asks the next question. And who is my neighbor? See, this man wants to find a loophole. I know I'm called to love my neighbor, but who exactly is my neighbor? Who do I have to love as myself? Because I can assure you, Jesus, that that I love God's people. After all, I'm a lawyer of the law of Moses. I love God's people as I love myself. I love my family as I love myself. Isn't that enough? Do I also have to love the pagans? Do I have to love the false worshipers around me, the Romans as I love myself, the tax collector, the sinners? Surely not. See, this man wants to show himself righteous before God and to be able to do so, what does he have to do? He must bend God's laws. He must lower God's righteous and perfect standards. This is what we do anytime we seek to try and justify ourselves on our own merit. We lower the very standard of God. We make a mockery of God's holiness and his perfection. So I wonder, in what ways have we been tempted to justify ourselves? In what ways have we been tempted to lower the very standard of God and think that we're okay? Maybe it's your holiness in a certain way. It's your language. It's the things you watch. Maybe your self-control. Maybe you think your Bible reading or your church attendance is enough. Your prayer life. The list can go on and on about the things that we can trust in for salvation. And as you see yourself trusting in certain things, ask the question, in what way do I bend God's law in order to call myself righteous? See, it's in the context of this very question that we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look with me now at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So in this parable we learn of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about 27 kilometers. 
Now, the road that this man would travel was commonly known as a dangerous road. It winded through barren land and desert lands, and it was surrounded by caves. And oftentimes, these caves made perfect hiding places for bandits and thieves, right? Waiting, ready to pillage and steal from any traveler walking these ways. And Jesus tells us that's exactly what happens to this man. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So these robbers strip the man, they beat the man, and they leave him half dead. The fact that they took his clothes meant that no one could really identify where he was from or who he was. He was a complete unknown person to anyone passing by. So here in our parable, we have a man helpless, half dead on the road. It's a dying man in need of help. And then Jesus proceeds to tell us of three different men who pass by. First, we see a priest. First, a priest, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So we learn of a priest. Most likely, the priest had just finished his priestly duties at the temple in Jerusalem. He's now on his way back home. And he's walking on his way home, and he sees this dying man on the road, half dead, possibly dead. He doesn't know, and he doesn't help. What does he do? He passed by on the other side. He avoids this dying man. Now, the priest could have done this for numerous reasons. He could have feared his safety. After all, here's here's a dying man. I can't stop here. I I might be robbed myself. It could be fear of being unclean because he doesn't know if this man is dead or alive. It could be that he's eager to come home to his family. Jesus doesn't tell us the reason why. But one thing is clear. Here is a priest, a lover of God, a seemingly lover of God, a servant of God in God's temple. And he sees clearly a man in desperate need of help. And he ignores him. He ignores his neighbor. And then we're told of another man. Verse 32. So, likewise, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, now we have not a priest but a Levite. What's the difference between a priest and a Levite? Uh, A Levite is someone who also worked in the temple but wasn't born in the priesthood of Aaron the line of Aaron. They were more like temple assistants. He too probably had the same exact reasons why he avoided the man on the road, but the same thing stands. Here we have another worker in the temple, one who would have professed a love for God, and yet what does this man do? He steps on the other side to avoid the dying man. Jesus here shows the hypocrisy of these two religious men, that though they professed a love of God, their love of neighbor showed no evidence at all for that to be true. And then we have the third character. And it's a rather surprising character. We would assume that the next character in Jesus' story would just be a layman, 
would just be a, a normal person, a normal Jew walking on his way back from Jerusalem. But it's not. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Here we are introduced to a Samaritan. Now to understand what's so shocking about this, we have to understand the, the cultural baggage here. See, the Samaritans were hated and despised by the Jewish people. Why? Well, because they were thought to be half-breeds. They were half-breeds. They, they were those, they were Jews who had intermingled and intermarried with Assyrians during their exile. They were not Orthodox Jews in any way, but they were seen as traitors to Yahweh, traitors who betrayed Israel and the Lord. They didn't even worship in Jerusalem, but worshiped on Mount Gerizim. We see this in the Gospel of John. And this animosity, this anger between both were on both sides. The Samaritans for the Jews, the Jews for the Samaritans. And yet, that's exactly who Jesus uses in this parable. And notice what is shocking about what the Samaritan does. You would expect the Samaritan might ignore the man, use him as a bad example. But that's not what happens. Verse 33. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This Samaritan shows compassion. He's moved to pity and tenderness for this helpless dying man. And his compassion moves into action. Do you notice that? That the compassion of this Samaritan moves him into action. He doesn't just simply think, oh, poor guy. That looks bad. Okay. And walks off. No, he's moved into action. He saw a need, he felt a need, and he did something about it. Verse 34. He went to him. He saw the helpless man, and unlike the other two who avoided him, right, went to the other side, this man goes to him. The Samaritan goes up to him, and what does he do? And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal. The Samaritan decides, I'll walk. Picks him up, puts him on his animal. Where does he take him? And he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. But that's not the end. It continues, doesn't it? Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Tells the innkeeper, don't, don't worry about costs. If this money runs out and you still need more money to care for him and make sure he's okay, I will pay it all. I will return and I will pay it all. Oh, do you see the love of neighbor that this Samaritan displays for this stranger? Most likely this Jewish enemy. It is absolutely astounding and lavish. He, costs, he, he, he takes the cost of everything on himself. Oh, here is a display of neighborly love. Here is someone who has loved neighbor as himself. Here is how the love of God should work itself out in the lives of his people as they love their neighbors as themselves. And so after Jesus tells this parable, 
he asks the question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus redirects the question. The right question is not, who is my neighbor? No, the the right question is, what kind of neighbor am I? Who am I a neighbor to? And how should I live? Because in this parable, Jesus is clear that there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Every person made in the image of God is our neighbor. Brothers and sisters, even our enemies are our neighbors. So Jesus asked, who proved to be the good neighbor? Verse 37, look at the lawyer's answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. You can almost imagine the the hesitance in the lawyer's voice. He doesn't even want to name who it was. He doesn't want to say, oh, the Samaritan. No, look what he says. The, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus reply, look with me at verse 37. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you notice the same conclusion after the lawyer asks his two question? Right? Verse 37, you go and do likewise. Go ahead and do it. Earlier, verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, though this parable does show us how God's people must live, I don't think Jesus gives this parable primarily to teach us about kingdom living. It includes that, yes, but that's not the primary point. Why do I think that? Because we have to take the entire conversation in view. This conversation is happening about how, how do I earn eternal life? It, it's ha- revolving around the thought of the fact that can we actually justify ourselves? Oh, Jesus is using this parable as a mirror for this man. He's holding it up to the man's face and saying, do you match up? Do you want to know what it looks like to actually live this out, lawyer? Here it is. He does it for us this morning as well. And so as we we're come face to face with this parable, we begin to see the imperfections of our life that we don't live in this way. You think you love God? Do you love your neighbor like this Samaritan? Because Jesus tells us if we did love God, we would love our neighbor as ourselves no matter who they are. The sad reality is we have all failed in this regard. We've not loved like this Samaritan, though we were created to. Yes, we were supposed to, because we're all made in the very image of God, made to display His kindness, mercy, and love. And yet too often we're found with selfishness, aren't we? We see glimpses of neighborly love in us, yes. But most of the time, by nature, we're not this. Just think of children. Would we naturally say, yes, children are by nature lovers of their neighbor? 
think all of us would agree that is not the case. That they are filled with the desire for me. In our, in our home, we call it the me monster that comes out of us, right? But just think through all of life. Does it change when we enter school? Does it change when we enter high school? Does it change when we go into work, college, families? No. We are too often filled with how can I best serve myself and how can I best love myself. In fact, recently I saw the hashtag, love your neighbor, and it's been used a total of 327,000 times. That's a good amount. However, the hashtag for love yourself, 82.9 million times. This reveals a lot about us, doesn't it? We have failed to be the Good Samaritan, just like this lawyer. In fact, Jesus will be so crystal clear about this, about lawyers. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And look at verse 46. Luke chapter 11, verse 46. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with, with one of your fingers. Or 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These lawyers were righteous on the outside by wicked on the inside. They professed a love for God, but their lives displayed a love for self. Oh, I hope you see the foolishness and the folly of thinking that we can somehow meet God's standard, that we can justify ourselves before the throne of God because we have so clearly failed. That's what Jesus wants this lawyer to know. Stop trusting in your own righteousness. See the folly of thinking that you're good enough. See that you are a sinner in need of help, in need of mercy and grace. After all, this is why Jesus came. We read of this in Luke chapter 5, when asked by the Pharisees, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was Jesus' reply. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, my non-Christian friend, do you see and understand that what God's law demands from you in order to be saved is perfection? Perfect love for him and perfect love for neighbor. And do you see that there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before him. That you are in need of help. That you are in need of a savior. Well, what then is our hope? Well, third and finally, the transforming mercy of God. The transforming mercy of God. Praise God that there is a true good Samaritan. Praise God that there is a true good Samaritan. Now for this lawyer, and for, for those around this conversation, they would have heard this parable and would have been challenged by their failure and their need for love of God and love for neighbor. 
but for us and for, for, for Luke and those who are reading the Gospel of Luke, we could understand that this story points to a better Good Samaritan. Right? We can understand that this parable actually points to someone who loves in this way. See, we are the ones who are half dead on the road, unable to save ourselves. We are the ones who are ruined in our own sin, left for dead unless someone comes to our rescue. We are the ones deserving of God's righteous judgment. And yet we know that Jesus is the one who saw our need. He had compassion towards sinners like us, and he came to our rescue. How does he do this? By taking on humanity on himself, the Son of God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And he lives the perfect life of loving God and loving neighbor that none of us have ever lived. We see this throughout his ministry. As time and time again, he shows compassion towards people and it moves him to action. And we see it ultimately in his display at the cross. His compassion is displayed at the cross where he binds our wounds. He heals us and he pays the cost of it all. And what's the cost that Jesus paid? Well, it's not money. It was his life. He gave up his life for his people because our sins demanded it. The justice of God required it and he paid it all taking on himself the very judgment of God. And he dies the death that we all deserve, and he rises on the third day. And the demands of the law, which we read earlier, perfection are fulfilled in Jesus. So that any one of us who trusts in him and turns from our sin are now justified, declared righteous before God, not because of anything we could ever do, but because of the work of the Son. Oh, church, is this not good news for us who have failed? This is the answer to the question, how do we earn it, inherit eternal life? It's not through our own righteousness, but through King Jesus. But we also see one more thing in this passage. We see that this eternal life that we have received transforms our very lives. This eternal life that we receive in Christ transforms our very lives. See, the good news of Jesus isn't only about forgiveness. It's not only about receiving life with God, but it's the fact that we are changed into the very image of the Son. We are transformed by the mercy of God. What does a good Samaritan do? He restores the dying man. In the same way, Jesus restores our relationship with God, but he also restores us and makes us new. Why? That we might display the righteousness and love and mercy of God to those around us to his glory. 1 Peter chapter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, I wonder, do you see this glorious salvation that Jesus accomplishes? Free forgiveness 
and a restored life offered in Christ. Oh, I urge you, turn away from your sin. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in this risen Savior. And church, brothers and sisters, in our passage, Jesus is not only exposing our sin and failure, but he's also actually calling us to actually love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Jesus, at the same time in our passage, actually says his people must live this way. But not because it saves us. Let's be clear about that. We don't live this way in order to be saved. No, we live this way because we have been saved. We live this way because it evidences true life. Jesus reminds us that our love for God must show itself in our love for our neighbors. That's why we read that corporate reading this morning. Remember that? 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is a high calling. And it's only in our Savior Jesus that we can learn to love and serve like this good Samaritan. It's in Jesus' compassion and love towards us that empowers us to love those around us in that same very way. So church, how have we reflected this very compassion of God? I wonder, are there ways that we have limited our love and our care for our neighbor like this lawyer? In what ways have we tempted to only serve a specific kind of people? Maybe it's only people we know in our small circles. Maybe it's only Christians. Right? Or maybe it's people who are like me, my, my, my same hobbies, my same likes and dislikes, people who are my age, my same ethnicity. Or maybe it's not necessarily serving people only like us, but it's excluding a certain group of people, right? Like what this lawyer wanted to do. Whether that be ethnic, geographic, economic standing, whatever it might be, about all the things that can divide us, do we let those divisions keep us from actually serving and loving those in need around us? Oh no, church, God has called us to love everyone around us. We must love and serve every kind of person around us, even our enemies and those who despise us. Listen to the words of Tim Keller. We instinctively tend to limit uh, for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Well, how do we do that? What are practical ways that we love our neighbor? Here are two ways we do that. First, be on the lookout for those in need. Christians, we must be on the lookout for those in need. 
But to be able to do so, it means we have to know one another. We often don't know the needs of those around us if we don't know each other. So here are ways that you can know the needs of our church specifically as we seek to love one another. First, attend a CLG group. Attend a CLG group. These are excellent groups that meet around the city where you can intimately know one another so you could share prayer requests, share certain needs where, where you might be able to help someone out in a certain way. Second, prioritize our evening gatherings and our members' meetings. These are uh, other gatherings where God's people, we, we meet as God's people, and often at these, we're sharing different needs of the church, different needs that you could be praying for, different needs that you might be able to help in. One current big need in our church currently are volunteers to serve in children's ministry. This is a wonderful opportunity to serve both the children of UCCD, ECCD, as well as the parents here. So if you're a member here and you're able to serve, please contact Hannah Howerton and be ready to serve. Third, build relationships in the church. Build relationships in the church. Don't be okay with just saying hi with one another, but actually get to know one another, asking, how can I serve you? Do you have any needs that I can help you with? But our passage also means not just getting to know God's people, but getting to know those around us, right? It's love for neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Everyone made in God's image that are around us. From our neighbors, actual neighbors, to our coworkers, to friends at school, are we looking for ways, church, to display the kindness and mercy of God to those that God has put around us? Second, Love and serve as you're able. Love and serve as you're able. Our compassion and love must move us to action. Let's not be like the priest and Levite who only professed a love for God and never showed a love for neighbor. No, we must be moved to action. Now these can be simple things. And I've even seen this, even in our church, such as giving people rides to and from church. We now have a bus that takes a group of brothers from Parco to here. But I wonder if you knew that, that before we had that bus, there was a whole group of members dedicated to driving before church, before Friday Foundations, to pick them up, sometimes doing multiple trips, and then driving them back, right, in order to meet that need. It could be planning to give specifically to benevolence. So budgeting a way to, to give to the benevolence of the church, Along with that, pray for the benevolence team who, who seek to serve and love those in need around us. Pray for wisdom for them as they seek to do this. It could be simply helping out uh, another family with chores around the home. It could be meeting a financial need or helping pay for groceries. Brothers and sisters, the reality is the needs are many, even among us and around us. Right? The list can go on and on. Well, how about the need of evangelism? And that's a good question to ask with a passage like this. Does this mean that we're just simply called to live lives of mercy and ignore the eternal suffering of God's people? No, that's not what Jesus is calling for here. 
as we seek to hold out the gospel to those around us, Jesus is saying our lives must display the very mercy of God that we proclaim about. That we hold out both, that we care both for current physical suffering and eternal suffering. And brothers and sisters, we must remember that serving those in need does require sacrifice, doesn't it? Whether that be time, money, emotional energy, there is a cost to pay when we choose to love those around us. There's a cost to pay to love those around us. However, let us remember the cost our Savior has paid for us. And let that be fuel for us to live sacrificial lives of mercy and grace toward those around us. Let us follow in our Savior's example, not because it saves us, because Jesus is clear that we cannot save ourselves, but because we have been transformed by the mercy of God. Let us pray together. Father, we confess that we have failed to love you with all our heart, minds, soul, and strength, and that we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. But Father, we thank you that you have given us a Savior who has shown us mercy and kindness, who has rescued us from your judgment, and not only that, but has transformed our lives to be like his. Father, give us wisdom, strength, and power to display the very mercy you have shown to us. Give us eyes to see the needs of those around us and give us the, the ability to meet those needs to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us stand and sing of this transforming mercy as we sing his mercy is more.